done it before. Here's the 0-1. This is going to be a tough play. Bryant, the Cubs win the World Series! Bryant makes the play! It's over! And the Cubs have finally won it all! 7-10. So I think today is kind of the end of an era for the podcast and kind of a new beginning. Should we explain to everyone the project that we're about to undertake? <laughs> sure. Hopefully it'll be totally transparent. Yes, this is kind of a heads up in a way and also kind of explaining what we're doing. So for as long as we've been doing this podcast, we've been hosting it uh, kind of through a friend's server, I guess you would say. Right. In layman's terms. His hosting service. So that is ending and we're going to move the podcast over to SoundCloud for a few reasons. One, gives us a little bit more control. Uh, two, the other podcast I do is on SoundCloud as well, so hopefully we can have a little bit of uniformity between the two. Uh, and three, it's just less, I guess, hands. We don't have to worry about inconveniencing the other guy. We've had some problems in the past, and we got to kind of contact him to try to get tech support and things like that. Right. Kind of eliminates all that. The issue is we have about, I don't, I don't even know how many, but at least 200 episodes that need to be uploaded into SoundCloud and onto the new RSS feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to take a little bit. So Don's going to work on that this week, and hopefully next week um, it will be different. I guess the changes for you guys, if you listen directly from the website, that's going to be gone. The website's just going to be there, I guess, as a place for people that we pitch to and things to be able to look at almost I don't know. You're not going to be able to listen to episodes from there unless we can figure out how to link them to the SoundCloud page, which seems like another project. Right. Uh, but uh, you'll be able to listen to the SoundCloud. The SoundCloud is www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. Okay. That's easy enough. So it's the same as the website, but SoundCloud.com. Right. And uh, that's really about all that it'll change. Yeah, hopefully, if you're if you're listening on iTunes, it'll be transparent. If you are using a service like Podkicker or something, you might have to research for it. Yeah, but I'll I'll look because I use I don't use iTunes, so I'll I'll figure out what. Yeah, see on iTunes, we should be able to just swap the RSS feeds out, and it should be and it should update. Right, I think so. All right, let's start the show. It's season six, episode thirty, November third, two thousand thirteen. Great show today, Sean McDonough. Uh, the play-by-play man for ESPN's Monday Night Football. I'll be honest, when I heard the news that Mike Trico is le- leaving Monday Night Football, I thought, oh, man, we don't get to interview the play-by-play man for Monday Night Football every year anymore. <laughs> I waited a couple months to ask because I, I figured it would be more likely we get a no early. Okay. You know, with the transition. And you can just hear the things that ESPN PR would say, you know. Oh, you know, Sean's busy kind of getting himself in and all that kind of stuff. So I waited, and actually it was very easy to set up. Emailed Mr. Hoffheimer. Next thing you knew it, Sean was on the line. Great. Uh, also, Eric Merlis will join us. He's the author. I guess he's more of a compiler. A book called I Was There. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, we talked about it in the book club last episode. Uh, Eric will join us. We'll update the book club in general uh, during the book club segment. Uh, we'll end the show with one last thing as we always do. And we'll get going now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So after 108 years, the Chicago Cubs are champions of baseball. Yeah. And they did it in epic fashion. Just a wonderful game last night, Game 7. Did you see any of it? I watched almost all of it. I watched I, – I bailed for like the middle three innings or so. Uh, it was going to be my one last thing, but we're going to talk all about baseball right now, I suppose. So it was great. I'm not a baseball fan, but it's the best game I've ever seen. I mean, with, I don't know if there were any lead changes per se, but Cleveland kept coming back and it looked like they stole momentum and they they would just find ways to get outs. And then, I mean, it's definitely it in my top five. I don't know if it was the best, but it's definitely in my top five. I, th- I was thinking about this game seven of the 2003 ALCS, the Aaron Boone game would definitely be up there. Uh, the 1991 World Series game seven, 10 inning. 0-0, Schmolten, Morris, that'd be up there. Um, game 7 of 2001 World Series, the Yankees, Rivera, Blood in the n- bottom of the ninth, be up there. Oh, I watched that in the Williams Center. Was that yep. Luis Gonzalez? Yep. Was, yeah. yeah. So there would be, definitely be a bunch of uh, – but that was, that was up there. It was an awesome game. It was great, and the thing I was going to say is I know it's hack, but you can't have the biggest sporting event – of your year end at 1 a.m. I, I don't know what they do about it because I know it's the manager's fault. Well, and 30 so, minutes of cold November rain. Yeah, I mean, that was relatively quick, but I mean... There's a 17-minute delay. They restarted at like 12, 15 a.m. So, I mean, when would it have been done otherwise? And extra at innings. Midnight? Yeah, that's, it's so long, though. Four and a half hours. Yeah, pitching changes kills it. Yep. Because it, it had good pace, and then it got into the later innings. And you just start swapping them out. I don't think there's any reason you don't start at 7. I don't know I, why yeah, it needs to start I, at 8. I don't know either. Is it really? First of all, your bigger markets are going to be on your East Coast anyway. I would but imagine. you can't argue with the ratings. No. I mean, it's the highest rated baseball game since 2001, and 40 million people watched it. Yeah, there was a... And there wasn't much of a dip late. There Not was about, some other people. show on. I can't remember what it was, but I just heard like, oh, this was... Oh, like the CMAs or something like that. And I'm thinking, man, that must have got crushed. Yeah, they got crushed like a great... Yeah. The other network switched out into replays. Oh, really? But you can't switch out on a live award show, I guess. Right. But, yeah, 40 million viewers is a huge success, a very successful World Series. Uh, As for the Cubs and the Indians, man, two great teams. And the Indians Indians played this whole series basically with, what, five pitchers? The three starters, Miller and the closer, maybe one or two other guys. And they almost pulled it off. Yeah. You know, it definitely was a factor. Kluber was definitely gassed last night. Yeah, Miller got hit, and so, but I mean, and on the Cubs side, so all did, the pitchers uh, were gassed. Yeah, Miller was gassed. Kluber was gassed. Chapman was gassed. Chapman, yeah. The only pitcher that wasn't gassed was Hendricks, and for some reason, they Madden rushed him. to take yeah. him out. I don't know what the rush was to get him out of there. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but Madden looks exactly like Steven Spielberg. Yeah, he's a weird. <laughs> he's a weird guy. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but it was a great game. Well played, I thought. Because can Theo Epstein? Theo Epstein's a legend. Can he uh, take over my football team? He, I I text uh, or tweeted to Harrington and said, "Is there any possibility we get him to take GM TM's job?" Ugh. Who I like, but man, this sure. guy is just I, a, unreal. Like forty-two years old or something like that, and he's turned around two cursed franchises and really good friends with Eddie Vedder. Yeah, super cool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, he's got to be a top five Yale grad. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer already. Yeah, right? oh yeah, it's that's insane. <laughs> that's insane. That I mean, that's reserved for like sixty year old crusty managers normally. Like, it's nuts. Yeah, just an, another unbelievable job, and that's a great team. They're going to win more than one World Series, I think. They could because I don't think there's any re- reason they won't. It's not like they're not going to be able to pay their guys. They'll be able to keep everyone they want to keep. It's a huge market. They're going to sell out. I mean, the business of the Chicago Cubs just. Went yeah. 10 times. You know, it's going to explode. I love the personality of championships, even when, like, a hockey team that isn't my team wins or in this case. I, I wish I would watch an hour of no broadcast, like, no narration, but just, I mean, someone get ready with the bleep button or whatever, but just watch the guys celebrate. And why, I always think they mess that up in hockey. They're not on the right guys in the handshake. And, and comedian Craig Gasp. Shot a video, yeah, watching that. the celebrities, yeah, become that, human and that enjoy stuff's it. Great. Was awesome. I, I mean, thought. these people are superheroes; they're millionaires, but so it's nice to see the human side of. I them. mean, our boy Ed was celebrating with Theo. Bill Murray. Bill Murray yeah. was in there. Uh, Cusack. Yeah. Uh, who was the blonde girl? Don't know. Uh, from TV, she had her name on her jersey. I can't think of who she was. Uh, actress was there. Billy Corgan was there. I wasn't even sure if Eddie was there during the game because they had oh, yeah, showing him all him night. Lot, but I didn't see him that. His I, face was he was right above the catcher. I I realized that afterward yeah. seeing the video, but I I didn't. They didn't like go to him as much as they had in other games. Uh, you might have missed it when you bailed out in those middle innings. because yeah. I know they did show him a few times. Um, I bailed out because I thought this game's over. It was like five to one. looks like the Cubs had everything going for them. And I'm like, I'll turn it back to catch the ninth inning. And then it was on. Crazy game. Good. It was a great playoffs for baseball. I thought I really enjoyed it all the way through. Great drama. Good games. Walk-offs. Good pitching. Miller was awesome. All playoffs, you know, Lester and Hendricks and even Arietta were good for the Cubs. I mean, Bumgarner got it started off with his incredible heroics early on in the wildcard game. We almost forget about that now. Just uh, it was a really, really great baseball season. So, is is Buck a is Buck a Cleveland guy at all? No, he's from St. Louis. Okay, I, I thought so. That's right. I don't know why, but I felt like he was getting accused of like he's from St. Louis. Leaning toward Cleveland. Well, that's why because he's from St. Louis. So everyone just insists that he hates the Cubs. Okay, so that's the big rivalry: okay. the Cubs and the Cardinals. So. Has nothing to do with Cleveland. It just has to do with St. Louis. Buck being born in St. Louis. Gotcha. Uh, anything else about baseball that I wanted to say? Ah, we'll miss it. It'll be spring training before we know it. Okay, football. Should we do some football? Sure. So last time we were here, <laughs> the Bills were four and two. Yeah. You and Anthony were sitting there talking about. I don't think either of you got out of control. You were just both very optimistic. There so was two very... losses later, where do you stand? Well, my realistic... I actually look at the schedule when I think of their record. I don't just see like four and two and think, wow, they're on they're on their way. You know, like, so from the beginning, I thought, you beat Miami, then you can lose those next two. So not, now they got embarrassed 
by New England, they have to beat Seattle. In Seattle on Monday night. In Seattle on Monday night. I've been there. So I I think they're done again. I'm back to thinking they're done. But if they win that game, that covers for the Miami loss, and they can still get to 10 wins because the the end of their schedule isn't too brutal. Like the toughest game I think they have – is uh, like Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh or something. I totally agree. It's like just get to 10 wins. The only thing about that is when you need to get like six of them in a row to end the yeah, season. Yeah. Puts a lot of pressure on the team. Because Especially when you lose to teams like Miami and get embarrassed. Like Jay Ajayi. Like, yeah, 200 yards. Them. It hurt not having Darius that game. I think the one thing that's pretty obvious about this Bills team that they need to improve on in the offseason is they need weapons on offense. Yeah, they tried. They, they got Charles Clay and they played him all that money and he's just – he doesn't do enough, or they He's don't not use the him field enough, enough yeah. either. I don't feel like. I mean, Percy Harvin. Is be their also, answer. it doesn't help that everyone's Watkins has been hurt. Yeah, you Woods know, was and, hurt. and they like Woods, but he's been hurt a lot. Woods is more of a possession guy, anyway. Like he's he'd maybe be a good slot third sure. to get another outside guy. But I think they need to address wide receiver. It's like the opposite problem with the Saints. The Saints got wide receivers for days, and they're good. Saints have Saints would have the best one, two, three punch at wide receiver in the whole entire league. And do they even need that though? I mean, with Breeze, do you? I mean, I, I well, you know, Breeze. How has he got, looked with bad receivers? Have Breeze they ever... has got a lot of pressure, and and I'm not sure what it was. Was Marcus Clayton a good receiver, or was he good because he had Drew Breeze? We'll never know. It's the only quarterback he ever played for, right? I mean, Jimmy Graham hasn't exactly flourished when he left sure. Drew Breeze, right? You know, uh, Robert Meacham signed a big contract in San Diego, and he left Drew Breeze. That didn't work. So I don't know. But yeah, these, it's a tough thing. Like, do you want to give Breeze weapons or do you just want to, you know, give him a defense? These guys are good. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. It's a likable Saints team this year. They might not be the best team, but they're in every game till the end and they battle hard and they're getting healthy on defense. So we'll see how they do the second half. But this is a test for them this week. Can they go win a bat against a bad team on the road out on the San grass? Francisco, right? You know, you got that X factor of Kaepernick coming off a of bye week, but. I mean, it's still a team that you got to beat. Yeah. It's right there for It's not them, a too. team that you think can kill you with wide receivers picking on the back corners. Atlanta looked like they were going to run away with that division, but that's right there. Especially yeah. if Tampa can give them a game tonight. It'll be interesting to see what goes on. Joe Mixon, man, this kid can knock it out of his own way for Oklahoma. Okay. I mean, we talked about, we've detailed in, in, in strong detail his saga with the video and hitting the girl. We right. debated what do you do about that, and I still I don't know. Uh, but he's suspended from tonight's game. Well, you actually plays tonight on Thursday. Okay. He's suspended because he got a parking ticket or something and flipped out on the parking attendant. Really? So Stoops had to suspend him a game. And the kid is so talented. He's, he's maybe the best player at OU. Most talented player at OU since Peterson. Wow. In terms of just talent. Right. And ability. He might be just a bust, though, a knucklehead. And I don't know how he's going to get through the draft process with that video. Because that yeah. will come out. It'd be interesting. I don't to know what s- happens there. How does the public react when you have a guy who's truly taken a punishment? Legally, he wasn't sentenced to jail, but he was punished legally. And he was also punished. I mean, he set out a whole year. Yeah, it would probably help to not go off on parking attendance. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, show, turn a, be a good show guy. Show remorse, right. be a good guy. I mean, the public can forgive. And, but there's some people, like, tough, I love yeah. Molly Knight. You know, and she's just. But she will not. Ne- she will never let this guy off the hook. I don't think. Right. I mean, every time Chapman throws a pitch, you know, she's on Twitter blasting oh, right. Chapman. Right. I forgot about. You that. You know, right. and uh, I mean, 
And I'd love to talk to Molly about it. Like, what do you do with an 18-year-old kid like Joe Mixon? I don't know. That'd be. What do you do when he? She'd punt- come back on, I think. Yeah. Oh, she will. And we'll and we'll and look at. I totally respect her call on it. I don't know. Like, I'm not saying she's right or wrong, but I just don't know what you do, and it, it does make me uncomfortable to some degree. You know, what do you do with Joe Mixon? 18 years old, you just tell him he can never play football again. Then what do you do with the kid? Right. But he's going to struggle with that draft process, especially since this kicker didn't do him any favors. The Giants kicker. And the NFL didn't do him any favors because that just brings their the glow. So I don't know. Uh, Back to the NFL. I I didn't want to forget that college thing I wanted to mention. Uh, Oh, in the college football playoffs, the top four were announced. Okay. And Washington, who's undefeated, was behind Texas A&M, a one-loss SEC team. So the SEC is just always—you're just always going to be favored if you're in the SEC. So. Yeah. But I don't think those things matter anyway because teams are going to lose and stuff right, like that. Yeah. So you, the only the only playoff ranking that matters is the last one. If you're in the four, uh, what do we think about uh, NFL besides that? Roethlisberger should maybe be back this week. Patriots are running away with the season. Yep. They're seven and one. The Cowboys are six and one. Uh, Prescott's going to stay in for now. I don't see how you pull them. It was close. If that fourth quarter in overtime doesn't happen, those two drives, yeah, yeah, and they lose that game, is that an opportunity? So does that lend to he's only? It's only going to take one bad game, and then they're going to switch. I guess it would have to. If he looked like Blake Bortles, like bad game, like he, he did that. That yeah. game was that game, Sunday night football game. The Eagles was bad was until that, those yeah. last couple drives. I mean, he threw a horrible interception. You know, it was going nowhere. It was a bad game. But the Des Bryant touchdown was really a great Des Bryant play. That wasn't a very good throw either. So, yeah, no, I, I don't know. We'll Rumble's talk more really about good. it when it matters. But yeah, and that's the thing. Rumble takes a lot of crap. Not a bum, very behind good him. quarterback, and he was playing very good when he was injured. So we'll see about that. Um, anything else you want to mention football wise this week? Jamal Charles on IR. Yeah, that's I mean, a bummer. That, that, Just never bummer got going for, this year for him. Yeah. yeah. He might be. He might be done. I mean, that's a lot of injuries in the last couple of years. Who knows? I'm, I don't. I'm not going to say he's going to retire, but just days of seeing Jamal Charles be Jamal Charles might be gone. Corey Coleman's back this week. Sheldon Rankins is back this week. We got some rookies who missed a lot of time playing again. Um. Oh, the Eagles released Josh Huff. I saw a funny tweet saying that he just wasn't good enough to be. Forget how they put it. <laughs> Better than I'm ever going to. But he was arrested for he's pulled over for speeding and charged of possession of an unloaded handgun without a permit and a Ugh. small amount of marijuana. Ugh. And he was uh, cut. All right, last thing: college basketball is about to start, Don. And All I right. and I know this because uh, ESP or not ESPN, but Sports Illustrated that came in the mail. It was Luke Wynn on the cover with his. No, okay. Article, you know, about the top twenty-five, and it's the SI college basketball preview issue. And I thought it would be interesting. So on October thirty-first, the preseason top twenty-five poll was released. So I'll give you a clue in saying that of the top ten, probably seven of them you should be able to get without thinking very hard. Oh, college basketball? Yeah. Oof, I just have to think. Seven of them you should probably get without... Like Duke? Without having to know. Okay, Duke's one. So you got one. UConn? UConn. You're thinking women there. Oh. Uh, They're 18. 
Uh, but not in the top ten. Boy. Come on. Think. I mean, the top three are all giant programs. I don't know. Is Oklahoma up there? Nope. They lost Buddy Heald and all their seniors, so they'll be dropped out. I'm trying to think year. who's normally uh, – I'm blanking. Giant right. programs. UCLA? No. I'm thinking of all the teams that were good like 100 years ago. Uh, Duke. Who's Duke's rival? North Carolina. Number six. Uh, wow. Who won the national title last year on a walk-off? I have no idea. Villanova. Or number oh. four. Okay. Villanova. You got to know Syracuse that. still good? No. Uh, they're ranked. Ranked, but not in the top ten. 19. Hmm. Number two is Kentucky. Oh, there it is. Yeah, Kentucky. <laughs> number three is Kansas. Okay. So, I mean, the top three are just yes. massive programs. Four is Villanova, and five is Oregon. Never would have got Oregon. Good in basketball. They were 31 and seven last year. Wow. So, uh, we'll see how they do. Yeah, I mean, and then number six is North Carolina. So, I mean, just huge programs. Uh, in the top, which I thought was really interesting when I saw the the poll. It's still a bit until I'm going to get too into college basketball. Yeah. You know, it's not really going to buzz me. But there will be some, probably some interesting non-conference matchups and stuff, uh, which I'll keep an eye on. Uh, and we'll have Luke in soon to find out what's going on with all these teams. All right. That's three things for today. I can't believe you, you didn't know Villanova was a team that won the national championship. No, I don't remember that at all. I'm sure I didn't watch a second of it. I mean, it's as legendary of a victory as you could have. I mean, in the show we talked about, was it the greatest college basketball basket of all time? Hmm. I don't remember that at all. Unbelievable. All right. We're going to take a break and come back with Sean McDonough. All right, our next guest is from Boston, Massachusetts, and is a graduate of Syracuse. He is the play-by-play man for ESPN's Monday Night Football. He's making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Sean McDonough. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Did you get any sleep last night? What did you think of the ball game? I uh, didn't get much. I like everybody, you know, you it was one of those games you couldn't say, well, I'm going to go to bed and I'll wake up in the morning and see how it ended. Everybody had to stay up to the end of that. And, you know, I was happy for the Cubs, obviously, and their fans. And personally, I'm happy for Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer. I worked with them in Boston, and they're great guys. And obviously, they've done a tremendous job building up the Cubs. So thought it was a great series. I thought it was a great time for Major League Baseball. You know, the ratings were really high. And People were captivated by it, and I think the Cleveland Indians deserve a lot of credit, too, for what they did. So it was great all the way around. Now, 2004 was your last year doing play-by-play for the Red Sox, correct? Yes. Now, how do you think the end of the goat curse compared to the end of the Bambino curse? Well, yeah, I think the they were both exciting. I mean... The Red Sox obviously came from three games to none down in the uh, series against the Yankees to get to the World Series. So that was uh, pretty impressive. And then, um, you know, obviously what the Cubs did, down three games to one to win three in a row against the Cleveland team, obviously with excellent pitching. Uh, And to win it in a classic game seven, I mean, I think when they write the history of baseball, that game last night, Game 7 between the Cubs and the Indians, will be very high on the list of the greatest games of all time. So 
it was a very fitting way to end the curse. And, you know, I'm happy for their fans. You know, a lot of times I remember in Boston, people used to say, well, if the Red Sox ever win, it's just going to change the whole thing about being a Red Sox fan. And now we won't have the long suffering Red Sox fan moniker to kind of wallow in. And it'll change the way people behave as Red Sox fans. And that turned out not to be true. I mean, I think the Red Sox fans are every bit as passionate. Obviously they've won world series since. And I think the Cubs have a great chance to win uh, several more world series. Cause that's a young team. Uh, that they put together very well. They have an excellent manager, and wouldn't surprise me if they won a few more in the coming years, just like the Red Sox did. What did you think of the job that uh, Buck and Schmoltz did real quickly before we transitioned to football? I thought it was really a fantastic booth. How about you? Yeah, I thought it was, too. I mean, obviously, Joe's rock solid, and you know you could put him on anything, and he'll do a good job, a terrific job. And I thought John Schmoltz was outstanding. I really did. I remember watching the game last night thinking, you know, it's a good thing they have him on here because, you know, he's, you know, the kind of guy who's worthy of being on a game like that. You know, when you have a game like that, as a television production group, you hope you have the team that has the ability, matches the level of play on the field, and is up to the task of producing a telecast of a game of that magnitude. And I thought they were up to the challenge. I mean, I think... They enhanced it. You know, they it, a lot of times you can have a great game unfolding right in front of you, but doesn't necessarily mean the production is going to be excellent. And I thought their production was excellent. Yeah, and it's an interesting perspective when you have a pitcher who pitched in a Game 7 of a World Series, you know, doing the color for a Game 7 of the World Series. I thought that his experience just maybe added to it a bit. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, he had great credibility when he talked about what it was like because, you know, he's been there and most of us remember him being in that situation, and I just thought he, in particular, as a pitcher, you know, he had a lot of insights into the individual matchups and what was a good matchup for the hitter and what was a good matchup for the pitcher, and I think a lot of the time, as he talked about that, that's the way it played out, so I thought he was excellent. You mentioned Buck being a guy who you can put on anything, and your career has kind of been an example of that as well. You've called all the sports whether it be golf or basketball, baseball, and, of course, calling Monday Night Football. I want to ask you about a strange one for a second real quick. You called hockey in the 98 Olympics in Nagano? Yes. So did you call the the Russia-Finland 5 nothing? or No, that wasn't, the score wasn't 5 nothing. Bray had five goals in the semifinal game. Did you call uh, it? Yes, no. we were there. I, I, you know, it's funny. that What I remember most about 98 was, uh, two things. It was the first year of NHL women's hockey in okay. the Olympics, and that was really fun for me to call for a couple of reasons. The two coaches, the head coach Ben Smith and the assistant coach Tommy Much, were both from Boston, are both really good friends of mine. So it was fun to kind of go through the whole tournament with them and spending time with them when we were off the air and really having an inside look at what they were going through as they tried to coached the team to the gold medal, and they wound up winning a very exciting uh, gold medal game. and So that was fun. And then in the case of the men's hockey, it was the first year that they allowed the, the NHL guys to play. So, uh, you know, that was tremendous. I think Dominic Hasek, the goalie, was, was yeah. really kind of the star of the whole thing. But uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was cool to be in Japan and you know, spend three weeks over there and get uh, – 
familiar with their culture and have a chance to travel around a little bit and see some of the sites. So that was a great memory of my uh, 10 years at CBS. Yeah, I'm just, a, I'm a huge, I was a huge Pavel Burry fan growing up. Well, I still am. And uh, that five-goal game against Finland, I mean, he scored a goal. I don't even remember it, but he left poor Teppo Newman, who was one of the best skaters in the world at the time. Uh, he blew by him at the blue line, and it looked like Teppo Newman was skating on his knees. I mean, and, and the speed <laughs> well, that he took you, you the puck know, to the you're net. Well, you know, because you're a fan, could do that to a lot of people oh. when he was in his prime. And uh, he was always fun to watch. I watch. He played with a, a flair and a style that was exciting, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was a popular with fans, for sure. Yeah, and we'll still always talk about, too, that one other thing about that 98 Olympics was Canada not shooting Gretzky in the shootout. And uh, Yeah, that was Ray hard Bork. to explain. Yeah, Ray and, Bork went instead, I think. Yeah, yeah, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of things I remember. You know, the, 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 unfortunately for the Americans, it wasn't a very – no. Positive experience, you know, then they had some ugliness with allegedly uh, trashing the Olympic Village and, and their rooms in the Olympic Village. So it was, uh, wasn't all positives over there, but it, most of it was a, a great experience for me. And the work with John Davidson, who, you know, was a great hockey analyst, and Darren Tang, and, uh, you know, it was just a fun group. Craig Silver was our producer, who I had worked with for a long time on college football at CBS. And, He's still doing the SEC football and CBS all these years later, and is a great guy and a great producer. So it was a lot of fun for me. All right. Well, I just wanted to mention that real quick. When I was doing some research, I saw that you had worked that, and it's just kind of a cool forgotten hockey tournament, I think. Uh, let's talk about Monday Night Football a little bit. It's your first year taking over from Mike Trico in the booth. Uh, we're about, what, seven or eight games in. Uh, what has stuck out so far as kind of uh, positive and maybe even a negative of the the first two months uh, calling Monday Night Football for ESPN? Well, for me, it's been just about all positive, and I knew it would be fun and exciting, and it's even surpassed the expectation level I had from that standpoint. You know, working with Jay Rothman, our producer, and Chip Dean, our director, I know because I've worked with them in the past, and I've seen them work these last few years, even though I haven't worked directly with Jay. I've done a lot of basketball with Chip. You know, they're two of the most highly regarded guys in our business, and now that I've worked with them for half the season, you know, I certainly understand why. They're enormously well-prepared. They provide great leadership to the technical and production crews. They interact great with us as the on-air people, and, you know, they just set a great tone, provide a great atmosphere for people to get their work done in a efficient and productive way, and... You know, I knew when I stepped into that booth it was going to be exciting, and then I still get a little of rush of adrenaline every time I put my headset on and they play that Monday night football theme in my headset just as we're about to come on the air. And, you know, it's it's kind of getting comfortable now. I, you know, I thought the first couple of games I probably tried a little bit too hard. Uh, you know, part of my challenge was to make it a little more conversational and yeah, I probably tried a little too hard to do that the first couple of weeks rather than just let it happen naturally. But over time, it has happened naturally. And, you know, John Gruden is so much fun to work with and be around on and off the air. He's what you would think he is. He's very entertaining. He's very passionate. He's extremely hardworking. I don't know if I've ever worked with anybody who prepares for games like he does. And I've certainly worked with people who are legendary for their preparation. So I don't say that lightly, but and I think he's just uh, terrific on the air. You know, he's a great teacher. I, I've learned a tremendous amount about football, 
even though I've been around it my whole life, I mean, he, I, I really have learned over these eight weeks how little I knew about football, you know, once I've been exposed to his teaching and his insights into really kind of the nuts and bolts of football strategy. So it's been a great experience all the way around. You know, I, I think the negative would be the ratings and the quality of the games. So someone told me the other day, I haven't researched it, so I'm not sure it's exactly true, but the average margin of victory for the eight games that we've had is something around 17 points. And, you know, obviously in the NFL, it's unusual that you have a game that's that one-sided, but to have eight of them that have right. averaged that is tough. And, you know, I think there are a wide variety of reasons for the dip in the ratings, uh, not just on Monday Night Football, but, you know, across all the NFL platforms. I think the election has a lot to do with it. You know, I think the absence of stars like Tom Brady at the beginning, J.J. Watt, we did a Houston game the other day, no J.J. Watt. We've been a Minnesota, we've done two Minnesota games without Adrian Peterson. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, there's just, uh, you look around the league and uh, there's a lot of people missing. So, and I think there's reasons, you know, there are a wide, wide variety of reasons. The way people consume TV is certainly a part of it. I think perhaps, uh, you know, with all these different nights of football on top of the Sunday day football, uh, maybe it's getting a little bit oversaturated in terms of the number of games that are on. But uh, you know, I, I think it'll bounce back for sure once the, we get through this election cycle, which uh, thankfully we're very close to. You know, uh, Mike Trico has done this spot with us uh, the last couple of years. And one thing he always used to tell me is that an interesting thing about working with John Gruden, he, he was almost like a coach to the crew and to him. And that yes. he would have this unique way of kind of almost showing game film to the to, to the team and showing plays and coaching everyone up. And you even mentioned it about how you, it made you feel like maybe you didn't know as much about football as you did before. Uh, talk to us right. a little bit more about uh, Gruden, the coach and the way that has bled into his style uh, preparing the team and how that's been different with the other people that you've worked with over the years. Well, he does, you know, John loves to be in the film room and you know, I think it still keeps him very close to football and, Every week he produces these video clips. I mean, I would say on the average week, I probably get about 30 of them, and they probably range in time from three minutes long to maybe 15 minutes long. And he basically takes uh, an individual subject, it might be the offensive line play for one of the teams, and he'll break down the entire thing. He has video of, of each player, and he has video of the way they play together. And he basically gives you his opinion about the players and the group as a whole and what they're good at or what they're bad at and why they're a strength of the team or a weakness. So uh, by the time we get to the game, he's pretty much provided us with video cut-ups of you know, every position group on each team, and you have a really good sense of what he thinks of the teams heading into the game. So uh, that's a big help, and as I said, I learn a lot while I'm watching that, and I don't know anybody uh, that I've ever worked with who has done that before for the crew. So uh, he provides us a great base of knowledge for what he expects going into the game and I think that helps everybody because we have a sense of what to look for and you know I have a sense of as things unfold during the game what he is probably thinking about and what he would like to talk about. You talked a little bit about some bad luck with the schedule and, and that's going to happen you know over the years as you as you go on you'll have good years bad years whatever but one of the cool things has to have been being able to be in the Superdome for the 10-year anniversary of the Saints' return to the Superdome. And we talked with Mike Tirico about 2006 and what that game was like. 
what was 2016 like? Can you take us in the dome a little bit and talk about all the emotions and uh, what it was like for New Orleans, for yourself, uh, to have the Saints kind of celebrating their 10-year anniversary returning to the dome after Katrina? Yeah, it was similar. I'm sure it was nowhere near as emotional as when they returned 10 years ago. Obviously, it wouldn't be, but... You know, that was phenomenal. I, I went back and watched the tape. I thought Mike and the group did a, an unbelievable job of capturing, you know, the emotion of it and the history of it and what the Saints return to New Orleans meant for the city. And, you know, we kind of revisited all that in our broadcast, and it was amazing to me how emotional it still was, you know, even 10 years later. I mean, what Katrina did to that city and to see the way that it's bounced back and in some ways it's still bouncing back but you know a lot of people thought it would never come back so that return to the Superdome it kind of marked the rebirth of the city a lot of people in the city said okay if the Saints can rebuild the dome which a lot of people thought would you know not ever be able to be used again after Katrina and after it housed all of the evacuees you know if they can come back and they can win and win such an exciting game uh, you know, maybe we can rebuild and come back too. So, you know, I thought we did a good job of looking back with flashbacks and that sort of thing on the 10-year anniversary. And then as it turns out, you know, one of the best stories of the game that night was the Atlanta Falcons had a rookie middle linebacker, Deion Jones from LSU, who grew yeah, up pick six. in New Orleans, mm-hmm. you know, a fan of the Saints. And when we visited with him the night before the game, he told us he had never been to a game. He had never been in the Superdome. And, you know, his family evacuated. They didn't know where his grandmother was for about a month. She had actually been in the Superdome, and then she got sent to Houston and didn't have a cell phone. They had no idea where she was or if she was even alive. So, you know, we we kind of told his story, and then in the game he intercepted a pass and ran back for a touchdown. So uh, that was a special night. You know, that was, for me, one of the best memories of the first eight games that we've done was his play and his story, and then, you know, to have him run an interception in for a score was really pretty cool. You know, you kind of mentioned uh, the ratings a little bit, and and one reason that people will cite sometimes is the quarterback play in the league. And I think one interesting thing about that game was how good the quarterback play was, right? Matt Ryan was unbelievable. I thought Drew Brees really carried the Saints on his back and even gave him an opportunity to be in that game. Of course, he had to pick six, but it was kind of a deflection pass. Uh, Maybe some bad luck for Drew on that one and held up to um, to give the safety a chance to get under it there. But the quarterback play in that game I thought was so good. Matt Ryan is making his case for MVP. He might be the MVP if the season ended today. Uh, maybe him right. and Brady. And I thought Breeze has had an unbelievable season. Then when you look at the schedule, yeah. otherwise you've had you know, Cam Newton, who hasn't been as great uh, this year as he was last year when he had the MVP. You, you know, you saw Sam Bradford and, and Jake Cutler and maybe the most unlikely quarterback matchup so far. I don't think anyone thought Sam Bradford was going to be a Viking this year. Um, right. you know, Brock Osweiler hasn't worked out for the, for the tight, for the Texans, excuse me, you had him two weeks ago and what was a, a game, uh, where he was sort of, uh, criticized quite a bit. What do you think about the quarterback play in the league so far this year that you've seen on Monday Night Football? I kind of threw some names out, maybe should have let you know, yeah. but w- what have you thought about no, the quarterbacks? Right. I, yeah. I think it was, you described it very well. You know, I, I think it's definitely a mixed bag. I, I think on the high end. Guys like that you mentioned, like Tom Brady. I mean, he's playing as well as he ever has. Yeah, I think with a lot to prove. To me, he's the best quarterback that I've ever seen. You know, it's hard to always to judge the best of all time because you know I don't remember much about Johnny Unitas and going back before him. 
you know, I don't really know anything about Otto Graham or people like that, but the other than what you read or you've seen on the very old films. But, you know, Brady's great. Uh, you know, Drew Brees is one of the great quarterbacks of all time. You know, I, I think there are still some very high-end quarterbacks. Cam Newton, when he's healthy, obviously is enormously talented. Ben Roethlisberger is going to be in the Hall of Fame. You know, he's still playing at a high level, although he's had some injuries this year. The problem is that there isn't enough of those guys, and the problem is, you know, there's a huge drop-off from them to guys in the middle of the pack, and then there's an even bigger drop-off to, you know, the teams that really have guys who just shouldn't be playing uh, as a starting quarterback in the NFL. So, you know, the adage you hear all the time from these personnel people, if you don't have a quarterback, you don't have a chance, and that's true. And the problem is there there just aren't enough high-level quarterbacks for each of the 32 teams to have a high-level starter. So you got a big challenge is to go find one. And, you know, that's what a lot of these teams that are trying to step up and get ahead are going to have to do if they're really going to take that next step. Because if you don't have that guy, particularly today now, I think with the limits on practice time, you know, one of the biggest places that it's been affected is in the offensive lines. If there's one thing that's jumped out to me, you know, as a negative on the field is the the caliber of play of offensive lines is is really uh, pretty low. And I think a lot of it is just, you know, they don't practice together as much as they used to. They're not practicing in pads as much. And as you know, Steve, a big part of offensive line play is cohesiveness and repetitions and timing and working together and knowing what the guy next to you is going to do and if you can't rep that out over and over and over again you know it's very hard to bring that out onto the field and just have it happen naturally so i think that ties into what you're saying about the quarterbacks you know i think when the offensive line struggles obviously it makes the quarterback look really bad so i think those two things are related yeah, well, you've seen some really bad offensive line play last week with the Vikings, and you, you're going to see some more maybe with the Seahawks this week. Uh, I got to watch the Seahawks. I'm a big Saints fan, so I seen the whole Seahawks game last week and was really surprised at the struggles of their offensive line. And uh, Russell Wilson is hobbled. You can tell he's not not the same guy he's been the last few years. You can tell you know he's gutting it out out there. Um, only having about, what, 35 rushing yards so far is probably all you need to right. know. Uh, to know. But when you look ahead at the schedule, I mean, we talked about some of the big margins of victory. You got to hope that evens out. And there's a really interesting. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. You know, like I play golf with a good buddy of mine, Rob Lawrence, who, when he's playing well and you start giving a hard time about he's playing better than usual, he talks about, well, don't worry, the reversion to the mean is coming. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm hoping we're due for the reversion to the mean in a positive way in terms of the competitiveness of the games that we have over the second half of the year. And, you know, we have a lot of really good matchups coming up. I mean, I think uh, the game Monday night that you mentioned in Seattle should be a competitive game. It's certainly a very important game for both teams. You know, Seattle trying to maintain its somewhat comfortable game-and-a-half lead in the, their division, and Buffalo trying to hang in there as a playoff contender. And, you know, Buffalo has a hard stretch of schedule coming up. And, yeah. you know, looking ahead, we got the Cincinnati at the Giants, which should be good. Uh going to be an important game. Houston and Oakland playing in Mexico City. There's a lot of great storylines there. You know, Green Bay and Philly should be a good game. Baltimore and New England we have in December. So, And we've got Dallas the night after Christmas, and they're always a big draw. So, you know, there's hope, but, you know, uh, you never know. You know, and then, unfortunately, that's something we can't control. You know, all we can do is work hard every week and try to put on the best uh, telecast that we can. But I think we would certainly benefit, and our group is really ready for a close game. But it's just been kind of frustrating week after week after week to have a 
game that's not competitive. Right. Yeah, that Cowboys that Cowboys Lions game that could have all kinds of NFC playoff implications on December twenty sixth. Cowboys could be going for a one yeah, seed. Yeah, I hope maybe. so. Yeah. I think Detroit's quietly had a decent year. You know, they're yeah, hanging Stafford. in there at five hundred and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with Minnesota backing up in that division right now and looking like they're going to have some problems going forward, I mean, I think with what they've struggled with on offense the last few weeks, it's hard to imagine that that's going to turn around. I certainly don't think getting rid of North Turner is, you know, a positive. The guys within the league regarded as one of the very best offensive coaches. And you know, I think right now with their team, with that offensive line, with those running backs, those receivers, I mean, they have an excellent tight end, but you know, the O-line, the other skill players are, uh, you know, they're, they're certainly not close to the best group in the NFL. So I think it would be hard for anybody trying to coordinate that offense to get them going up and down the field and score points. The sportscasters are here with Sean McDonough from Monday Night Football. We're kind of going to finish up with him. A couple more quick ones I'll throw at you real quick. Uh, you know, the schedule is so difficult. It's made in April. You know, who knows what you're going to get by December. And I wonder, do, do you do you think there's any possible way for Monday Night Football to get the advantage that Sunday Night Football has with the flex? I know it's so hard with, in this case, you'd have to actually switch the, the day of the game. But I was, right. I was thinking about it yesterday. I was like, well, why not in the middle of November just kind of set reset the schedule for December maybe? Maybe a plan like that could work. Do you think about flex scheduling and its role in Monday well, Night Football? Well, yeah, obviously, I'd love to see it happen selfishly because mm-hmm. You know, the more ways we could figure out how to have the best possible games, you know, the better it is. You know, not just for us who work on Monday Night Football, but I think for the viewers, obviously, you tune in to watch it. But you hit on it. I think logistically it's very hard. I mean, for Sunday Night Football, it's not that hard because the teams are planning on playing on Sunday anyway. You're just switching the time. The fans are planning on going to a game on a Mm -hmm. Sunday. So, you know, it's just a matter of changing the time, which can still be very inconvenient, particularly to the fans. But... You know, it's not a logistical nightmare in terms of uh, actually changing the day. I think logistically, you know, moving games on short notice from a Sunday to a Monday would be very tough for everybody involved. So as much as I like the idea, I, I think it's highly unlikely that that would happen. Uh, maybe we can end on this. You're not on Twitter, I noticed. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure Joe Buck, uh, some, who also is sometimes not on Twitter, he's, he will delete his account. Uh, I'm sure he probably would think that that's maybe a good idea at times. Uh, is there and is there any reason why specifically? Um, is it maybe just the obvious? And is there any chance? Is, does ESPN want you on there? You know, like what is it with you and Twitter? Because it's just it's interesting to see you not there, sort of. Yeah. Well, you know, the when Twitter first started, I remember thinking probably like a lot of people, what is this all about? And you know, at that time, ESPN came to us and said we'd like the on-the-air people to tweet. And I said, well, can you fire us for something that we tweet? And they said, yes, we can. You know, <laughs> it would have to be pretty outrageous. And, and I'm, you know, I don't think I would ever do that. But, you know, I, I just haven't gotten caught up in it. And I do think, you know, there have been times where I have, I've never sent a tweet. There have been times when I've read it. You know, Jay Billis is a very close friend, and I know that he was piling up hundreds of thousands. Now I think he has over a million Twitter followers. So I would go on and read it, and I just found, you know, the tone and tenor of so much of it to be negative, you know, and and, and some of it really mean-spirited, and it's these anonymous people, 
know, some of whom look like they have two or three followers or something. But, <laughs> you know, they say some yeah. really kind of vicious things uh, under the protection of complete anonymity. So it's just not anything that I'm interested in. You know, and people say, well, I use it as a resource to gather news or whatever. Well, there's plenty of other resources to gather news without Twitter. And I know sometimes Twitter does it a bit more quickly because of the immediacy of it. But, yeah, I've I've lived my life fine without it, and I plan to continue to live without it. You know that that, news- and I know in my case it would be. I mean, I've worked with people who uh, check their Twitter during the games that we're doing, and they get upset. You know, they they search for their own name or however you describe that, and then right. they can read what everybody's saying about them, and they they get upset and get it distracts yeah. them, or they start to respond to these anonymous criticisms or comments. From you know, I, I worked with one analyst. I won't mention who said, "You know, I know people think I've been tough on athlete X." Well, what does that mean? That means I just read on Twitter that I was tough on this player. So, you know, <laughs> when you start responding to it, whether it has merit or not, I, I think it becomes a big negative. So, I know it has its positives, and, and a lot of people are really, really into it. But it's just something that has never really interested me, and. I think it would probably irritate and frustrate me more than it would be beneficial. Yeah, you know, last night I think was the first time I've enjoyed Twitter in a while. Just kind of being able to watch the game with everyone was kind of cool. Um, that's probably right. that's maybe the strength of it. That that's when it's got it when you know everyone's happy, everyone's enjoying the game. Uh, it's almost like you know I, I got a young baby, so she's sleeping, so I got to be quiet in the house. But you're kind of it's almost like having a couple thousand people in the living room there watching the game with you. So that was kind of right. fun last night. It's kind of, but then you mentioned like the immediacy of it and like how I can g- gather news, and that can be a negative. I mean, you you just sitting there and you're like, oh, let me open Twitter real quick. This happened to me a couple weeks ago. So let me open Twitter real quick, and it's like seconds before Jack Eichel had hurt his ankle in, in Sabres practice. It's like, oh no, no, you know. And then you got to refresh the thing for the next like two hours. Like, oh, please <laughs> don't let it be broken or you know what? Oh no, what's going to happen to Eichel? No, you know so. Right. That's not always the best thing. No, I, I understand. <laughs> you know, I, I think there are certainly benefits to it, and it does serve a positive purpose in many ways. But, you know, for me, as I said, I just have little interest, in, uh, and I you know, I don't think what the world needs. You know, we already had the Internet and all that. I don't know if we really need another forum by which uh, people have an easier way to uh, belittle or criticize or demean other people. You know, I just And to me, it seems like that's a lot of what Twitter is used for, and... That's not uh, that's not of any interest to me. You know, I try to see the good in other people and uh, just feel blessed beyond measure for the the life that uh, God has provided for me. And you know, it's just not something that I really feel compelled to spend my time worrying about. Sean McDonough and John Gruden call Monday Night Football every Monday at eight thirty on ESPN. But of course, everyone knows that already. Uh, Bills and Seahawks this week. I hope. Uh, the schedule, as you said, kind of evens out a little bit for you guys. You get some great games in the second half. This is really a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for, for coming on and doing this with me. Oh, my pleasure. You know, I'd heard a lot of great things. I know from Mike Chirico and you know, what are our folks at ESPN who arranged this, that you do a great job, and you know, clearly you do, and I really enjoyed it and be happy to come on any other time you need somebody to uh, spend some time with. Well, that means a lot. Thank you, and I can't wait for next time. Thanks, Steve. Take care, my friend. All right, I want to thank 
Sean McDonough for being on the podcast today. It's really an honor to have him on the show. I want to thank him very much. Nice guy. Really nice guy. And glad that he's uh, excited to come back on another time. That's really cool. One thing Don and I always pride ourselves on is not necessarily that people come on, but that they come on again. Right. You know, I think that that says just about as much about the show as someone just coming on once. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. A lot to talk about in the book club. Let's start with Jeff Perlman and the amazing week that he had. Uh, his book is Gunslinger. The Remarkable, Improbable, Iconic Life of Brett Favre. And this thing blew up. Yeah. Sold out. Did you hear his Amazon story? So he sells out the first day on Amazon. I think he said it was 2,000 copies. Okay. And right away they reorder 5,000. But Amazon kind of screwed him over because they kept saying that it would take a couple months to ship. And he didn't know why. It was saying that because they were already going to have 5,000 like the next day. So it might have screwed them up. They for, were saying that on the website. Yeah. Corolla was talking about this a while back too with one of his documentaries saying that it was – they say they do that like to drive like – it doesn't make sense because his problem was right around Christmas, so he was annoyed by it. But, yeah, I've heard that, that they're weird about it. It was number one on Barnes & Noble. People were selling them pictures of their bookstore of it being sold out. Wow. So it's probably going to be his best-selling book, and we can't wait to have Jeff on to talk about it. But he's been everywhere. I've seen him on Good Morning Football. I've seen him on Cowherd. Uh, he was on Jim Rome. I heard him on there. Really great spot. Uh, so I'm really happy for Jeff. Also, his daughter went viral. Did you see this? No. Uh, his daughter is Jewish, obviously. Uh, Jeff is Jewish. We talked about that in the show for some reason before, I think. Mm-hmm. And her best friend is Muslim. So for Halloween, they were like the Jewslims. Okay. A superhero team of... A Jew and a Muslim. Yeah. Okay. And he, Jeff tweeted it, and it just blew up and went <laughs> viral. Like 100,000 likes on this tweet. Wow. Well not. So Jeff is a proud author and a proud parent. We love Jeff. Can't wait to have him on. Now nobody's going to buy his book. <laughs> so political. and. No, I think this is taken in pretty, pretty well. Okay. People saw it as a unifier, kind of. Sure. Uh, playing Through the Whistle, Steal Football in an American Town by S.L. Price. We waited forever for this book. I gave a copy to my grandpa. Okay. He's a big reader. And I just, we had a lot of them. And I thought, let me give one to him, let him read it, and it might be pretty interesting to get his feedback. And he loves the book. He's all into the Mike Dicka stuff. Uh, there's a lot about Mike Dicka and his name changing. This is the Aliquippa book, yes, right? Yes, the Aliquippa football book. And Dicka's one of the stars of Aliquippa football over the years. Him and Ty Law and Revis and yeah. Tony Dorsett. To name a few. And uh, so my grandpa loves the book. I gave it to him for free, and he said I would he would have paid me a hundred to read it. Wow. Could send it to SL Price. And he sure can't he wait. <laughs> he, can't, he can't wait to pass it off to a friend, I guess. Nice. Uh, we still have a ton ton of these books to give away. The sportscast is at gmail.com and Mr. Price will be on next week. So the next show. Uh, the next book, the newest one in the book club. Another one we've been excited about. Lucky Bastard. Joe Buck, My Life, My Dad, and the Things I'm Not Allowed to Say on TV. I got a copy of it this week. Nice. I'm going to start reading it. We're going to have Joe on soon. I texted Joe last night and said, congratulations on a great call. The Cubs did not make it easy on him. The play to win the pennant was a double play. was going to be tight. Are they going to get him? Yeah. So you can't really sit on that. You got to kind of call the play and then transition into the Cubs winning the pennant. I thought he nailed it. And then last night, it's a slow dribbler on the grass, and Chris Bryant might miss the ball. You kind know, of stumbles. He might fall. It's wet out there. So two tough plays, and he nailed them both. 
And I texted him and I said, you know, congratulations on a great call. Him and Schmoltz nailed it. We didn't talk about that when we were talking about the World Series, but that booth is the best booth in sports. John Smoltz is so good at what he does. And those guys were awesome, all series. I don't – any haters, I, I just have no time for you. Yeah, I'm not they a baseball so guy, good. but I don't, I don't get the hate. They were so good. Yeah. Um, and he wrote back right away like nice. within two minutes. Wow. Like, thank you so much. And so, I don't know. He's a great guy. I don't get it. Yeah. So last piece of business in the book club. So way back in the beginning, we had a book called War Room by a guy named Michael Holly from Boston. It's one of our first books in the book club. I really liked it. I loved the book. He was on, did a great interview with us. And I see they had a new book out, Belichick and Brady. So I reached out to my text message, said I'd love to do it. He never responded to the text message. And then like a couple hours later, I got a phone call from the publisher. And they're like, hey, you know, Michael Holly forwarded our information. I went over everything with her. She sent me six books, one for me, five to give away. Okay. Great. Well, I hung up the phone and I don't like have their number or anything written down. Like I don't know who they were. Okay. You know, so that they're gone. And he's not responding to any text messages. So, he so mean- like I'm not gonna beat my head in the ground trying to get him to come on. I don't really care that much. Hmm. I have enough to read anyway, so if he doesn't want to come on, I'm not even gonna bother <laughs> reading it. Right. You know what I mean? I got enough books piled up here. I'm trying to read Jeff's book, SL's yeah, three book. Huge ones too. You know, I just finished Passon's book. I mean, I got enough to read. I don't have all day to just read books. Right. So if he doesn't want to come on, forget it. But it's like whatever. So I got copies of this Belichick and Brady book to give away. If you want them, you can text me. But I mean, I'm not going to ship them to you. You're going to have to pay for the shipping. <laughs> you have to PayPal me five bucks. I'm not paying 25 bucks to ship all these books out. Right. I'll give them to charities over the years and benefits, baskets, stuff like that. I do to clear books out when I do it. But I, I don't get it. Hmm. He must just be selling, selling so many copies that doesn't need to be bothered. Interesting. All right. Speaking of the book club. We talked during the book club segment last week about a book an author reached out to us named Eric Merlis and his book, I Was There. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's take a break and we'll bring Eric on and we'll talk about the book, I Was There. Alright, our next guest is from New York and is a graduate of New York University. He is the author, I think you'd call him an author, I guess it works that way, of a book called I Was There. Joe Buck, Bob Costas, Jim Nance, and others relive the most exciting sporting events of their lives. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Eric Merlis. How's it going, Eric? Doing great. Where did you get that music? (laughs) <laughs> where, where do you find? Where do you find everything? Right here. Let's just <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> so it's not often that we, we we usually bring people into their fight songs, but usually it's instrumental. But right. that was the only one I could find. So I, I think that's the only one. Yeah, look, NYU is a Division three school. There weren't a lot of people hanging their hats on any of the athletic stuff these days. Fifty years ago, it might have been a different story, but but now they're they're lucky to make the Division Three NCAA tournament every so often. 
I went to a Division three school as well, so I, I, I feel your pain as a SUNY Fredonia grad. So Okay. But, uh, you know... I, I I keep uh, I keep fighting with people about why we don't fire our hockey coach, and they they say we have a hockey team. Like, oh, well, <laughs> I guess that's why he doesn't get fired. <laughs> like I graduated from NYU twenty five years ago. The basketball coach is still the same guy that was there twenty five years ago. Yeah, our hockey coach is he's only yeah. the second coach we ever had, and he started the third season. They had a team like twenty five years ago, thirty five years ago as well. So. <laughs> Good job security in the D three athletics, I guess. Yeah, I say so. Yeah, that's what I should have done. You've had some really cool jobs. Well, thank you. I don't know. Thank if I've, you. I've been I've been very lucky along the way. I don't know if I've ever talked to someone who held the job title of manager ticker operations. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit? Of, we're going to talk about the book, obviously, but I'm curious. Yeah, sure. Can you tell me a little bit about ticker operations. Well, I I was in charge of the the, the ticker operations first at CBS Sports Network, and then. Took that experience and and moved out to LA and was uh, was the coordinating producer for the tickers um, for Fox Sports out in LA for three years. Uh, and basically, you're overseeing all of the editorial content, uh, managing the, the team that's putting the content in, and making sure that that it's it's up to standard and and reads correctly and um, doesn't doesn't offend anybody, which can happen at times. And then working behind the scenes with with other departments to make sure it looks right and that the that scores are coming in properly and, and things to that effect. You also did media relations for the New York Islanders, and you say that one of your things was you wrote and added the team media guide. Yeah, yeah, That's that was that was one of my uh, one of my responsibilities. Was I was and, and everybody that worked in the department did that. Uh, this was going back uh, to the I was there ninety one to ninety six. And um, you know, back then, there were hard copy media guides. You gave yeah. one out to every member of the media. It wasn't nobody was looking anything up online. It was all about here's the information. If you need anything else, and the other main part of my responsibility was if anybody needed any information or, or stats looked up, historical kinds of things, they came to me for that. Uh, again, it wasn't as easy. It wasn't as easy to find information then as it is now. And this could maybe be our first I was there, but you worked the 1994 Eastern Conference Finals, which is one of the best Eastern Conference Finals ever between the Rangers and the Devils. Yes, uh, yes. yes. I was yeah, I was brought in by the NHL to, to help out during that series when the, um, the, the amount of media on a national level went up. The teams always needed an extra pair of hands or two, so the NHL would help out, and they would bring in someone from one of the other teams. Uh, so that just happened to be the year they brought me in. And it turned out to be one of the all-time great series. And, you know, we all know how it ended with the Matteau goal yeah. and Howie Rose's call and to be in the building for something like that. And when people ask me what my five moments are when we talk about the book, uh, that that moment is on my list, even though I worked for the Islanders and, and never was a Ranger fan uh, that moment is still on my list simply because of just how incredible it was. Well, yeah, the Rangers had ended the Islanders' season a few rounds before. Yeah, uh, we don't want like to talk about that. So at least you got to, despite that, you got to uh, to get some more work that season thanks to the Rangers. Um, that's all. That's such a fascinating uh, season to me, the 94 NHL season, because uh, the Rangers on the 1940 drought, 
um, which I've been thinking a lot about this week because of the 1948 and 1908 droughts that we keep talking about in sports. Sure. Uh, sure. But also, you know, uh, the Canucks and Pavel Bure, and um, they still don't have a cup. Maybe that drought would have ended if things went just a little bit different, but that was a really great series, not just for Mateau, but also the Game 6 guarantee by Messier. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. That was, that's, you know, a lot of people say, and, and it didn't come up as much in this book as it did when I did this um, back in 2007, but a lot of people say that the, the, the Rangers winning the Cup and the, the actual winning of the Cup was in some ways anticlimactic after the Ranger Devil series and the way it ended. Huh. I'm surprised because it was such a great series between the Rangers and Canucks, still. Oh, it was a wonderful series. Yeah. It was. But, you know, you look back now and you look back at a lot of things in sports history, not just that series, but a lot of times there was something after it. You know, Buckner was game six, right. for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, they won game seven and they had to play game seven to win it. But everybody remembers Game 6. And when you go back to 94 and the Rangers run in the playoffs, more people look back to the Matteau goal than they do anything else. Yeah. yeah. It, well, yeah, and it's such a famous call, too, with the Matteau and Matteau, as you mentioned. Right, And right. One, one more hill to climb. It's Mount Vancouver. Just a great, great call. Oh, you've got that thing down pat, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was the perfect age to just take that series in you know in that playoffs sure. you know i was 14 that year and just you know i always think the rangers man i was a huge Bray guy too and i like the rangers i it was perfect to just enjoy it but the rangers got to play the devils the the capitals and the islanders so they barely right. traveled those three rounds whereas vancouver played calgary which is you know decent travel for a west coast team not not too bad but a seven gamer where the Rangers played a four-gamer in round one. And right. then uh, they played Toronto, which is across country, and Dallas right. in the three right. rounds. So uh, Dallas yeah, if, second. If you were to so, add it up, yeah. oh. I would guess that the Rangers in the, enti- you know, in, in the entire first three rounds traveled less than one flight from New York to Vancouver. Right. That might be the biggest disparity in cup final history. I mean, just as a guess. If I, it's almost sure. like try to find it. I would go to that one first and see how it added up. Sure. Uh, but uh, I was there. Uh, it's a cool thing. You know, one of the first books we did in the book club was a guy named Alex Belf put together a book about the original Yankee Stadium. I think it's called Lasting uh, Yankee Stadium Memories. Um, and a bunch of people wrote uh, about things they remembered uh, at Yankee Stadium. It was such a cool concept. And when you sent me your book, it was uh, kind of a like opening a local idea up to a bigger idea in my mind when I was reading it. Like, oh, cool, instead of just about Yankee Stadium, here's every possible memory. Right. And, um, you know, that was really cool. And it was also cool, like, flipping through, trying to find things that would make my list and seeing if other people had them. And that's that's the cool thing about the book and and why it's relatable to anybody that reads it. It... You might be reading Bob Costas's memories or Joe Buck's memories, but when when Joe Buck talks about Game Six of the 2011 World Series, you're going to say, "I knew where I was when I was watching that game." If you weren't lucky enough to be there, you know where you were for these, and and it's going to bring those memories back, and it's going to get you comparing 
some of the places than some of the games that you've seen to whatever everybody else has seen. Obviously, um, most people don't have the body of work that that a, that a Bob Costas or a Jim Nance or a Bob Ryan or a Dick Stockton has, and, and that's fine. But you know, the the fact that you're able to just sit and compare and say, okay. I, I know where I was when that game happened, and I remember hearing him talk about this game live, and now I'm reading what was going through his head. Yeah, and by the way, Kenny Albert, Marv Albert, Ian Eagle, and Steve Levy all mentioned uh, Game 7 of Rangers and Canucks 94 that we were just talking about. Right, so right. So that's pretty cool. It's definitely in the book. Uh, I was there, so uh, you can get some context about what we spent a few minutes talking about in this interview. What do you get more, people wanting to tell you their list or – people wanting you to tell them your list? You know, it's weird. Lately, I've been getting a lot of people asking me my list, um, which, you know, it's cool. But, you know, the, the book, obviously, it's not about me. It's about everybody else. And I like hearing stories. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of talking about myself. It's, it's fun to talk about the book. Um, when it comes to people wanting to hear, you know, what I've done along the way, it, I, I I prefer you know I can tell stories with the best of them, but it's more about it's more about hearing these stories and, and that was one of the fun parts about all of this was you know, I, I got a chance to sit and talk to some of the great storytellers in America, uh, you know uh, uh, Bob Ryan or Jerry Eisenberg from from uh, from the New Jersey papers, Costas is is an incredible storyteller and. Just getting some of these memories, and there's no camera to put any pressure on them to, to say you know, certain things and, and watch what they're talking about and watching their language, and there's no deadline for the writers. So they're able to just sit back and relax and share some of these stories. And, the, and when you get a great storyteller, you get great stories and you get great memories out of all of that. And that's what I like to hear. I, I prefer listening to what everybody else is talking about than talking about the stuff that I've done. You know, last week uh, we were talking about the book, uh, my partner Don and I, and we also, my brother was here and was kind of like acting as a third mic. And uh, we were passing the book around looking at it. We were talking about it during the book club and obviously the what would yours be thing came up and it was a kind of cool moment because I said, well, you know, the um, for me, one of the ones would definitely be the uh, 2013 uh, NCAA Ice Hockey Championship game in Pittsburgh, which my brother played in. Okay. You know, and he's just sitting right next to me and and get to talk about how important that was for me to be there. It's just kind of a cool, you know, like I don't know if we ever talked about it like that. We've talked about the game a million times and him winning the championship a million times and things that happened after with our picture and the Richard Deitch Twitter thing and all that. But I don't know if we ever talked about, you know, what it had meant to be for me to be there. So it's kind of a cool, uh, a cool moment that I got to have with the book. So I thought I wanted to share that with you. No, and that's cool, and that's and that's what it really is all about. That's how the whole concept started. Was you, you sit around with your friends and your family, and you share these stories, and it brings out different memories. And it's some something that you know, if you and I and a couple other people were just sitting around talking about games and things like that, it, it's invariably going to go in this direction. Yeah, so, so to have people to have people that have these bodies of work doing the same thing is really it's really neat yeah and you did a great job too in the book going i mean there's moments from 1953 to present time in the book yeah you know, yes so. I, 
I try to I try to make sure I had di- as diverse uh, a group of people as I could. I wanted to make I didn't want everything to be from the last ten to twenty years. I wanted to make sure we went back further and and almost make it you know in some way a sports history book. Yeah, and it really is too. And you got some great stuff. It's not just Super Bowls. I mean, you got people like Jeff Perlman, who uh, I laughed because. One of his was like a Delaware basketball game, right? You know, and it's like right. from 1992. And I read about a Delaware basketball game from 1992, and never, never learned about Drexel at Delaware from the <laughs> Delaware Fieldhouse. Otherwise, um, and uh, so I thought that was really uh, a really cool part of it. When you would get the when you'd say when you get a list back and you look it over, was there like a holy cow that's cool moment that you can think of? Uh, when you well, read someone's list, I was like, wow, cool. That That's going to be a part of this book now. I, I actually, I think of the 65 people in the book, I think only two or three actually sent their list back. Everybody else was live on the phone. Oh, okay. So it was, to what you were saying, it was incredibly neat to sit and have a conversation with someone. And I'll tell you two stories in particular where this really happened where all of a sudden you're getting this story, and not only did you not know this about the person, but the story itself is just so cool that when I would hang up the phone, I would turn to people that I would be near at work or at home or whatever, and I'd say, you've got to hear this story. Uh, One is from Terry Gannon, uh, who played in one of the legendary college basketball games of all time, the North Carolina State-Houston game. And I disqualified that from the book because I wanted it to be things he witnessed, not things he participated in. So he started telling me a story about how he grew up with Rudy Rudiger and was at the Georgia Tech-Notre Dame game that is depicted in the movie Rudy. He was actually at that game that happened Hmm. um, and insists to this day, Yes, there's some dramatic license taken, obviously. We all know that. But he insists that it happened the way it happened on the field. He says, I don't care what anybody else says. That's what happened. So that's one. And the other one is Jeremy Schapp. When he was a kid, uh, his father, Dick, is one of the legends of the business and was covering the New York Yankees in the late 70s and went to Boston to cover the one-game playoff series between the Yankees and Red Sox in 1978 and brought Jeremy along with him for the day. Now, he couldn't sit in the press box, obviously, because Jeremy was with him, so he had to find tickets and sit in the stands to watch the game. So he asked around before the game, or he was asking some of the Yankees, and, and Jeremy and his dad ended up sitting in Bucky Dent's seats when he hit that home run wow. in the 1978 playoff game. <laughs> Bucky freaking Dent, right? Yeah, exactly, and it's just... <laughs> So you hang, you hear someone talk about that story, and you're just like, "How cool is that?" And I didn't expect to hear something like that. You know, you're, you're expecting to hear fun stories and great stories, and I really encouraged everybody to make their list as personal as possible. Like you said, there are there are tons of World Series, there's tons of Super Bowls, there are tons of championships. I, I wanted to to capture from everybody. Not just some some piece of their career that people might not have known, but I also wanted to try to capture in some way what drove people to be in this business and 
you know, remind everybody that everybody was sports fans for, before they were broadcasters and journalists. And I wanted that to come out, and I think it did. Right. And it's cool, too, when you look in the – if you look through, like, in the back of the book, there's kind of a, a chronological list of the events and, and who wrote on them, and then you can kind of flip around and find them. And it's kind of cool, too, because you look at a game and you're like, oh, that must be the game where this happened. Or right. then you'll see something and say, wow, what the heck is significant about that thing? I got to find out. Exactly. You know? And exactly. Yeah, and that, that's a really fun part. And yesterday I was just sitting through, flipping through, looking at World Series stuff, uh, waiting for the World Series uh, to start last night uh, before Game 1. I was looking at some of the different World Series moments, like the, the – um, Dodgers game one against Oakland, uh, which I think Marv Albert and Bob Costas wrote about. Yes. Uh, yep. yep. And then, which, and then a cool thing about that is someone wrote about game two, and I've never thought about game two. <laughs> Not many people have, <laughs> but then when you read the story, you right. understand why you talked about it. Yeah. And it was Doug, Doug Gottlieb who did that, wrote about game two, which was really cool. Right. Uh, it's just a great concept. I was there, Joe Buck, Bob Costas, Jim Nance, and others who lived the most exciting sporting events of their lives. What was it like, uh, getting people to agree to do it? Uh, was it mostly met enthusiastically, um, was it hard to get the people? What was the process of kind of putting the stories together? You did mention well, a lot of people did it by phone, which is definitely cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm as I said before, I'm lucky. I, I've had some some great jobs in the industry. I, I've made a lot of friends. I, I called in basically every favor that I could uh, and got introductions to a lot of people that way. Some people I already knew, so I reached out to them directly. And everybody, everybody that I talked to was really enthusiastic because it, it is a cool topic to talk about, uh, and and it's a cool. It, it, everybody got the chance to go back and kind of reflect on their careers a little bit, and you know, put to their list together, and, and it kind of made everybody think a little bit about just what they've done, and, and they all had some fun with it. Well, I got to get at least one story from you. What, what would be something on your list? Well, my my top one is always going to be while I was working at the Islanders, uh, and I grew up an Islander fan, so that was my first job. It was cool working there. And I was uh, with the team on the road in the 1993 playoffs and was in Pittsburgh for Game 7, which the Islanders won in overtime yeah, right, to right. go to the conference finals. Yeah. And if you remember, those are the Penguin teams with Lemieux and Yager and all yep. of those Hall of Famers. I remember the game. Yeah. yeah. It, it, the Islanders were supposed to be swept out in the, yep. in the second round. Pierre Turgeon was hurt. Uh, he was hit uh, in the last game of the previous series by Dale Hunter yep. in what is probably still the the, um, the worst Nasty. cheap shot in the history of sports. Yeah. Uh, so there was no Pierre Turgeon for most of the series, and all of a sudden here it is, Game 7 in Pittsburgh, and the winner goes to play Montreal, and we you know we didn't expect to 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 be at that point, and we go into Pittsburgh, and and David Volick scores the goal in overtime, and we got right on the plane and went right to Montreal. We didn't come home; we went straight to Montreal, uh, and I, it's still it's one of the more surreal moments of my career. It's one of the coolest nights of my career, just to be a part of that and to and to be in the building, and 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 that again, that's what this is all about: is being able to tell stories like that. And if you ever want to get angry and blame someone for why we never got to have Gretzky versus Lemieux in a Stanley Cup, Eric 
David Bullock <laughs> and the Islanders are the reason you can. That was that was the best shot. That's right. for sure. Uh, because you know, if Pittsburgh gets through there, then maybe they maybe they can beat Patrick Waugh in Montreal, who right. went on like a ten game run that year of winning in overtime. What did they win? Ten yeah. overtime games in a row, including uh, that was a cool playoffs for me because the Sabers. This is the first time the Sabers won a, a playoff round practically in my lifetime. They had won right. a couple rounds when I was an infant, but they finally, on the Mayday goal, which probably would have to be on my list. And it, what's interesting about that goal, and I remember where I was for that goal, because the Islanders played that night as well. And there were a bunch of uh, former Sabres on the Islanders that year, if you remember the year Terzon, before with the Palafon yeah. trade mm-hmm. trade. So yep. Terzon and Huey yep. Krupp and Benny Hogue were all on that team. And they were sitting in the players' lounge in the locker room after the Islander game, and were watching that that goal as it happened. And I just happened to be watching with them when it when it went down. And uh, it, it was just, it was cool to watch their reaction to see it, you know them cheering on a whole bunch of their friends and former teammates right after playing a playoff game themselves. Yeah, I just made my first communion, so my dad took me to down to the arena, the odd at the time, and we got only were able to get standing room tickets. So I was actually like sitting on the steps of the oranges and the odd next to just okay. some lady who was not minding that I was sitting next to her on the steps. And <laughs> I didn't, my dad was behind me standing somewhere. And um, yeah, that was fun. That was, that was uh, probably the first cool sporting event that I had really been to. Um, it's a good one too. And, yeah. and, and, and it's list worthy. And it, and, what I what I always end up doing now is whenever I go to a game that something cool happens at or a championship game or something to that effect, uh, when something like that happens, I turn to the person next to me and I'm like, well, that was bookworthy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the book is called I Was There, Joe Buck, Bob Costas, Jim Nance, and others who lived the most exciting sporting events of their lives by Eric Merlis. He's also on Twitter. You can find him there at the Merle, M-I-R-L. Uh, and the book is available uh, in bookstores now. Um, Eric, thanks so much for giving us a chance to talk to you about the book. Uh, bring it oh, to the it's book my club. pleasure. Really appreciate it. Really enjoy it. You bet. Uh, so thanks many, for having me. Yeah, I, so many cool sports I, I, moments. It was great. All right, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. You got it. Thanks. All right, I want to thank Eric Merlis and Sean McDonough for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode and all of our episodes, for now, on www.sports-casters.com. We're on Stitcher and iTunes. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. We got a copy of Michael Holly and SL Price's books to give away. Email us there. Let us know you want one. Give me an address and I'll send it to you. Uh, don't forget you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters for me at Dying Lake Sports for Don, and our sister podcast, The Lonely End of the Rink. This week features Scotty Bowman. Yeah, let's check that 14 out. 14-time Stanley Cup champion, Scotty Bowman. Uh, plug in Buffalo. So he lives in Buffalo, has since the late 70s. Uh, so we talked to him about that. You can find that on www.soundcloud.com slash lonelyrinkpod. And you can find uh, that podcast on Twitter, at lonelyrinkpod. All right, one last thing for me this week. Um... I always talk about nerdy crap usually in this section, and this is going to be no different. I want to feel like I'm with it with things, but uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and that's like my social media. And I think that makes me old. Like I think young people use Instagram or Snapchat, 
And I was asking my sister, and I still don't really have an answer. Maybe you can help me out with this. But I don't know, like, what makes someone gravitate toward – because I have Instagram. But I think I missed the boat with that, too. I think the kids do the Snapchat now because mm-hmm. of, like, the stories and stuff. It's hard to keep up. I, There's I, no doubt. What's the difference? What's What does Snapchat have on Instagram? And well, Instagram? I've always said that Snapchat was solely created for sexting. Right, but they, that it was when it was disappearing that, nature. Yeah, of that, it. That, they don't. Do but that now anymore. you don't really even bother with that. It's right. all about the story, right? Right. And then Instagram said, "All right, well, we're going to do a story part too." Okay. So that you can do that on there as well. Okay. Which one has the filters where you can look like a dog and stuff? That's Instagram. Hmm. I think, or okay. no, I'm sorry, Snapchat. That's. I think what I like most about Instagram is it's kind of a uh, photo book of your life. Okay. What what was that thing called? Your grandma would get it out and then she'd hand it to you and you'd flip the pages. It's like a photo album? Yeah, or? photo album. Yeah, yeah. It's like a photo album for your life. Okay. You know, if you just post Instagrams that go in the feed, you know, you end up with this really nice photo album that's sort of chronological. Sure. I can't talk today. Yeah, I feel like Facebook, to me, especially like with this election that we've talked about oh, enough. Like, it's unbearable. It's unbearable. And all I want Facebook now for is like, it's almost like a journal. Or like, especially with babies, like Michelle will write things like for my son's second birthday that passed. She wrote out like a whole thing and I'm sure she's seen other moms do it where it's like, uh, I like this and this and this, I don't like this and blah, blah, blah. So like now when we see that a year from now or 10 years from now, we'll go, oh, look, Ryan at two years old, I forgot he liked this. Right. And time hop has really made that kind of thing even more valuable too. Yeah. It's easier to keep track of this stuff. Yep. Yeah. I think. But yeah, I think that, I think I've. I installed Instagram, but I don't do use it a lot. But I think I I got the wrong one. I feel like I was supposed to get Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, I kind of use them both. I don't use Snapchat a lot. Snapchat I mostly just use to look at other people's stories. Okay, you know, so I maybe that's what I should. do. I don't post a lot on there, on but I do lurk on there. And yeah. Instagram I enjoy posting on. Okay, I think if you jumped in on Instagram now, I have it. I have an account. I just don't really use. it. I that. think the good thing about it is like posting pictures of the kids and yeah your family and kind of using it as like a digital photo album. Yeah. It's just weird for a guy that feels like I'm kind of with it with technology. Like that blew me by like the Instagram Snapchat. Yeah. Thing. You know, I've gotten lucky to be close to a 20 ish year old brother. Mm, okay. You know, right. he's kind of helped me. Uh, stay yeah. My with sister, it. I don't, she's the one that kind of in, keeps me informed on it. But right. You need that. You yeah. need that link to that, that, that generation. Cause they're really on the, the cutting edge. <laughs> of the photo app technology. <sighs> All right. One last thing for me then. Um, Brian uh, Brian Baldinger. He works for the NFL Network. He's a former NFL player. You know him? Yes. Yeah. NFL Network analyst Brian Baldinger. Okay. He was recently suspended by the NFL Network for six months. Um, for – he was on – Six months without pay for comments he made on Philadelphia's 97.5 The Fanatic regarding the Eagles game against the Cowboys. He said, This is the guy that we've got to take out of the game, Baldinger said. There's got to be 10 guys that want to hurt him every single play. In fact, we may even put a little bounty on Ezekiel Elliott. Oh, no. Um, so, I think he's probably okay saying all of that until he said the word bounty. And he kind of knows that. Yeah. Uh, Richard Deitch had him on his podcast. They did kind of a real quick 22-minute podcast. And he kind of explains himself. He says, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek element to it. I used the words that got me into the firestorm in it, but it wasn't really the spirit of it. 
let's go knock this guy out of the game. Let's put this guy on a stretcher. It isn't anything like that. That wasn't the intent at all. And if it was interpreted like that, that's my fault for leaving it too loose. Yeah. Um, but six months without pay? That's rough. That's rough. I mean, he's not a coach either. I mean, that's almost as bad as what uh, and I, Saints I, coach has got. I'm the first person to be like, don't compare this suspension to that suspension. The context doesn't work. You know, like when people are like, oh, this guy got four games for smoking weed, but this guy got two games for punching a lady right. or something. Yeah. But in that sense, the collective bargaining agreement clearly right. kind of outlines those suspensions. But here we are in the real world where there isn't a collective bargaining agreement and they're stripping this guy of his livelihood for six months. For what reason? That's rough. Yeah, that's a. Th- he he didn't say anything in. Fl- and who's calling for this? Right. Where's the? Uh, there's no outrage on this. Right. That's a rough one. My brother's always said, and he didn't play hockey at the level that your brother did, but he always said that you, when you hit somebody, you hit to hurt people, but not to injure them. So I mean, that's probably what he's saying. More like let's. He's saying let's, we got to rough this guy up right. and intimidate him. We got to welcome right. him into the NFL. It's right. been too easy. He's been dancing around these teams too easy. We got to put a body on him every time he touches the ball. We got to knock him down. And I think that was my my brother's. Yeah, kind of, you want to hit a guy to make him think twice about coming in that area next. You don't want to hit a guy to have him break his leg or something like that. And it's like the whole thing with concussions. And I've said it before. And like, look at Tim Graham was tweeting a couple of weeks ago after the Dolphins game and he like shut it off or something. He wasn't going to watch. Oh, because of Landry. It's like, look, at, here's my take on that. Everyone knows the risks now. Everyone knows. All these guys know what the risks are with concussions. And if they still choose to play and be compensated greatly for it and assume the risk and they can't even respect each other. Right. Yeah, why, Land- why should I have to not enjoy the games anymore? Landry has said it's it's affected him that he may have ended Aaron Williams's career, and we'll see if that's being overblown. But those guys need to respect each other, and if they're not even going to do that, it's hard for me. But also, it's like some guys will they'll work the coal mines or something, and they'll do it because they don't have a lot of options and because they can get paid really well, and they know that it's a really risky job, but it's the only job they can do given their qualifications that can earn them the living that they can earn doing it right and there's no problem with that and i used to work with guys in hockey schools from canada and this is before the oil market crashed i don't know if it's like this anymore but i used to work hockey schools with guys in canada and they'd say look at from 25 to 30 i'm going to western canada i'm working the most dangerous jobs in the oil fields i'm going to make $90,000 a year if i get lucky i'll get booted up to management i'll be able to do that job forever i'll make more money than i could ever do anything else other than playing in the nhl mm-hmm. and i know it's risky but i'm going to take it i'm going to take that risk for five years and they knew it they knew the risks they knew they could even die doing it they knew they could there's accidents burns and you know lose a leg who knows the things that happen in those tough blue collar jobs yeah anyone that signs up for the military but weighs they, those options they know and... the risks and they they t- and that's what i think football is now you know we Everyone knows there's a two generations of players walking around now right. that are examples of what could happen. And if you still are going to take the risk, I don't know. I'm still going to watch. I'm still going to support the guys. I, I don't know. I don't know why. But, like, this is what pisses me off about the league. Come on. You're taking away this guy's livelihood for something he said? 
This is he has no effect on the game, right? Yeah, that that's that's rough. He's not a coach. He's just saying that this is what he would do. He would make sure that they hit the guy over and over, and it was a mistake to use the word bounty. bounty and he knows yeah. it. But is that worth six months? That's rough. Six months. What is six months from now? I don't even know when that is. <laughs> May. He can't get a paycheck till May. Yeah, that's insane. Because he said the word bounty. <laughs> On a radio station, he has no effect in the game. He doesn't play in the game. And they wonder, like, why are ratings down? Why do people hate the league? Why does Tim Graham want to turn it off? Sometimes it's just so frustrating, this league. Because, yes, it is a league where you can have domestic violence issues like Josh Brown does and get suspended for one game. Right. But if you go on a radio show and say that you think the Eagles should have a bounty on Ezekiel Elliott without any control over whether they have a bounty or not, that gets you six months? What if we said it? Could the NFL suspend us? Yeah, we're going to cease and desist. You're suspended for six months. No more podcasting. Well, at least uh, the suspension won't last forever. Nothing does. 